Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with David John Murphy, MD, PhD, who is lead author on an article entitled Red Blood Cell Transfusion Practices Among Critically Ill Patients. Has the evidence changed the practice? Dr. Murphy is an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. He also serves as the director of quality for the Emory Center for Critical Care. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Murphy. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, <clears throat> it's a very interesting um, manuscript that you've uh, and a project that you've put together here. Uh, I always forget uh, when different um, landmark articles came into uh, uh, into publication, and it's been quite some time, uh, as I recall now, that uh, the trick trial was published. You you were really looking into how practice has changed, and and kind of used that landmark article as um, uh, a transition point in the practice of critical care medicine and transfusion. And I, I was just wondering what questions you had in mind and some of the background that led you to uh, looking into this uh, work in particular. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. So one of the questions that's bothered me for uh, some period of time was that there seems to be a gap between uh, the evidence that we work so hard to uh, identify and the clinical practice that we routinely provide to our patients. And certainly we see that uh, in a variety of settings, including the ICUs. And so one of the common disorders that we see in our patients are, is anemia. It's, it's quite common across ICU patients, and therefore transfusions seem to be quite common as well. And so we wanted to look and see uh, how the evidence from the TRIC trial uh, has influenced the clinical practices in a, in a broad uh, population base of, uh, of critically ill patients. Um, certainly, uh, in addition to the TRIC trial, there's a variety of other uh, randomized clinical trials uh, that have been published subsequent to that, as well as a number of observational studies as well. But we tried to hone in really on the TRIC trial as being really that landmark um, uh, game-changing paper. And uh, have other folks looked at the, the trends in transfusion after the, the trick trial? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's been, there were some uh, relatively uh, uh, short follow-up studies that looked at the, uh, in a more of a cross-sectional or a pre-post sort of design, um, but these tended to be uh, smaller studies uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and single, uh, single center. Um, you know, for one one paper to uh, to mention would be uh, Giora Netzer's uh, uh, recent paper looking at transfusion practices within a medical ICU at, in uh, in Baltimore. Uh, so, and they looked at that over over a prolonged period of time as well. But uh, there are not many that look at a prolonged, a longitudinal assessment in a in a large uh, larger population. So, with that in mind, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, this the, the Maryland database uh, system that you used, and uh, and how you decided to to uh, answer 
these types of questions? Sure. So the uh, Maryland Health Services, uh, or rather Health Services Cost Review Commission, or HSCRC, is a is a database that's uh, uh, state-run um, and has been in place for uh, for decades uh, and contains a robust uh, data set of administrative, principally discharge and billing data uh, that's used to inform uh, set rates for the, the hospitals uh, within Maryland, the non-federal hospitals within Maryland. And so um, it's been used for a, a number of um, population-based research studies, um, including uh, uh, certainly transfusions as well as uh, surgical and, and other outcome studies within within the state. It's, it's a it's a nice population. It's a nice data set to be able to work with and, and have available over time. And uh, can you discuss discuss your analysis and how um, how you went about uh, investigating uh, transfusion practices within the database, and then and then some of your findings. HSCRC uh, database captures uh, um, ICD nine uh, billing codes and others um, uh, other codes as you. Um, typically seen within within these large administrative data sets. And so um, we looked for the presence of um, transfusion, red blood cell transfusion uh, codes within uh, the uh, uh, within the study population and um, and assessed changes over time. Uh, this en- enabled us to, to see just basically what proportion of the populations were uh, had presence of this uh, transfusion code uh, present uh, in the in the records. And so, this is uh, any transfusion, uh, any billing for any transfusion, I suppose. Uh, yes. So it's it's uh, any any trans. It's a procedure code for allergenic red blood cell uh, transfusion. So nine nine dot oh four. That's in the discharge record. And is is. Uh, I guess there's, I mean, there's no quantification, perhaps, of the of transfusions, just no. whether or not they were transfused. No, yeah, right. You're right, absolutely right. So, so there, in terms of limitations of this, we don't know how many uh, 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 red blood cells were transfused. We don't know when they were transfused. We don't know um, uh, what the specific indication for that transfusion was. Um, so, that's just one of the limitations of these. Those larger um, data sets. Uh, but were you able to tell whether or not the the transfusion was during the critical care stay, uh, or was it during the entire hospitalization? It was during the entire hospital stay. Certainly, we see that the vast majority of uh, patients are transfused more during. They're much more likely to be transfused during sure. the ICU stay than than non ICU stay. Sure, and. Um, I guess one would would hope for or expect uh, a decrease in um, transfusions over time following uh, and pretty important uh, and not just one one article but um, a growing body of evidence suggesting decreases uh, in transfusion are most likely beneficial. Um, you didn't quite find that, did you? Uh, unfortunately, no. So when we when we looked at our um, our study population and we we restricted it to account for some of the, the issues in terms of surgical blood loss and whatnot, so we restricted it to non-surgical adult admissions, 
that were in an ICU for more than a day, and uh, we found uh, that uh, uh, about seven, uh, a little over 70,000 um, uh, admissions kind of met that criteria. And unfortunately, the found that the um, the odds of a patient receiving a red blood cell transfusion increased from uh, 7.9% during the pre-trick baseline period, which was a, a five-year period that we had from 1994 to 1998, up to 14.7% in the post-trick period from 1999 to 2007. So I wonder, when, when you first uh, looked at the data, were you surprised? I was. I was uh, expecting that it would go down or at least, uh, at least stay the same, uh, but it was curious as to why it why we saw an increase. Um, Maryland is set up so, uh, so uh, with, the, with the payment structure, so um, kind of upcoding is, is not so much of an issue. So we didn't expect uh, that that would be playing a role. So we were curious as to why that, why that might happen. And um, so in further analysis, um, I guess it makes sense to try and control for changes over time that may have influenced transfusion uh, practices. You used a lot of uh, multivariate analysis to further analyze uh, those trends. That's right. So we, uh, we looked at the you know, typical demographic patient characteristics. We looked at um, comorbidity, uh, comorbidities using Alex Hauser um, uh, comorbidity uh, set. It includes uh, heart failure, uh, uh, cancer, um, liver disease, things like that. Uh, looked at the whether the patient was admitted from an emergency room. Looked at whether a patient was what type of uh, principal kind of di- discharge diagnosis um, uh, was found. Whether a patient had sepsis. Um, looked at their ICU and non-ICU lengths of stay, as well as. Uh, teaching status and um, uh, the diag- number of diagnoses and procedures coded per patient, and uh, and finally looked at the the annual ICU volume uh, uh, that the uh, the individual hospitals uh, had during those uh, during the study period. And is um and was is part of the issue here that patients perhaps were just sicker over time that were uh, in ICUs and in, in the hospital? So we did see that. We did see an increase in uh, liver, uh, uh, liver failure. We saw an increase in, in renal failure. Um, yet despite having um, an accounting for these uh, sicker populations, uh, populations with uh, greater uh, comorbidities, um, we still saw this increase in in the likelihood of being transfused. So after controlling for all the variables that you mentioned earlier, uh, the trend um, persisted, is it? That's right, it did. And perhaps one of the interesting uh, uh, findings was that uh, what really stood out to us was the the difference in how uh, different volume hospitals, um, uh, the, the Difference in the in the trends between different volume hospitals, even after we adjusted um, and accounted for the different patient characteristics. So that that's where I guess, was it that um, 
high, higher volume hospitals uh, did have a trend towards decreased in transfusions over time, whereas That's the right. low volume hospitals did not. That's right. So, so during the uh, the baseline period, there was really no difference in the higher and lower ICU volume hospitals. But after uh, Trick, uh, the publication of Trick in '99, we we saw a divergence of the of the curves. Uh, so, uh, such that the the while well, the lower volume ho- uh, ICU volume hospitals uh, continued to trend up, uh, we actually saw a decrease in the higher ICU volume hospitals. Um, in that post-trick period. Interesting. And uh, not knowing enough about the Maryland system, are, are most of the high-volume uh, centers uh, teaching institutions and the low-volume centers not, or is it... Uh, they're very... pretty uh, equally dis- uh, distributed. You do tend to see a little bit more uh, teaching within the, uh, the higher ICU volume hospitals, but there are still uh, quite a few um, high-volume uh, hospitals that are not teaching, and, and there are some smaller uh, hospitals that uh, that do have teaching programs. So, what what uh, what do you think might be the the difference there in uptake of um, a change in practice based on uh, what, what many would say very quality evidence? Yeah, it's it's hard to say, and, and I think we need to we need do need to look into this more as to what the specific factors are. Uh, some of it may be that um, certain uh, uh, lower volume uh, hospitals are not um, uh, uh, critically assessing their uh, transfusion practices as readily as lower volume hospitals um, uh, may have to do deal with uh, how uh, clinicians weight the um, the risks and benefits of uh, uh, of, of transfusions versus anemia. Uh, and, and the comfort um, that we have as, as, uh, at, the, at the bedside with our patients. So it may be uh, some provider-specific factors, um, such as that comfort. It may be related to uh, some uh, organizational factors, uh, perhaps uh, uh, whether an, an organization has a, whether a hospital ICU has, is closed versus open, um, what the, uh, the influence of intensivists um, uh, versus non-intensivists is on, on practices and whether there are transfusion protocols that exist um, or policies that exist within the hospitals. So right now we don't know that in any systematic way. Uh, within the databases, is there any um, um, recording of the types of ICUs as far as open or closed or presence of intensivists? No. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, there, is, there isn't that, that structural data does not exist. So I guess nor do we know much about um, the approaches they took to transfusion strategies. No, and, and certainly not over time either. Um, uh, certainly we can, uh, in, the, in the future, start to look at tying the, um, the, the structural aspects of how we provide care, whether an ICU is closed or open, whether they have a transfusion uh, or, other, uh, or other protocols, Collecting that in a systematic manner, and then uh, evaluating that with the, uh, the, uh, the the care that we're providing and and the and the outcomes for our patients. 
there's certainly a lot of complex factors that would, would play a role. Well, I was when I was reading it, I, you know, I couldn't help thinking of some, you know, the conflict we get into sometimes regarding uh, the data uh, for early goal-directed therapy in in patients with uh, sepsis and the sepsis, surviving sepsis campaign. And I, I was I wondered if, if there was a way to tease out whether or not the increase in transfusions was related to um, early goal-directed therapy, or at least was more predominant in patients um, with uh, sepsis or septic shock, uh, and how that might have played a role in, in the influence of transfusion approaches over time. We certainly um, did see an increase in uh, the, the sepsis diagnosis um, within, our, within our population. It, it roughly doubled from um, a little under 11 uh, percent of our patients up to about 21 percent um, of our patients, and, and that happened uh, similarly um, between the, uh, the higher and lower volume hospitals. Um, while we don't know uh, specifically, when, again, when a patient was transfused, um, we do know that when we um, include sepsis in our model, as, as we report, we don't see any influence of that um, sepsis uh, diagnosis on, on whether on how we're transfusing. So at, at this time, although it's something certainly that we want to, to keep in mind, some of these increased transfusions may be related to early goal-directed therapy, but um, we're, we're not seeing that have playing a big role within the, within the data that we're seeing, at least, at least within this study. Am, am I misreading, um, just looking on table two, uh, where you have uh, odds ratios based on patient characteristics, and that in-hospital sepsis diagnosis did predict an increased risk of or increased rate of transfusion practices? Yes. So you're, so it within that model, it does increase the risk of getting transfused, um, but it doesn't mitigate the, uh, the, and doesn't influence the, um, so the, the higher, the, the trend that we see between the higher and lower volume hospitals um, is independent of that increase in sepsis diagnosis. I may have misspoken. Does that? You know, I just wanted to make sure, I always like to make sure I understand. Um, I don't think, I don't think you misspoke. <laughs> I'm just trying to clarify in my own mind. I, I, I guess when, so while, while sepsis diagnosis, I forget, I think it was labeled, um, or uh, increase, uh, predict an increased uh, risk or rate of transfusion when controlling for sepsis between the high volume versus low volume centers that didn't explain um, or take away the uh, the difference in trends in transfusion practices is that yes that's right so when we so sepsis is increasing in uh, in in prevalence and we're seeing more cases and we do see in our multi in our adjusted model that it does uh, increase the the odds of getting transfused but the difference between the um, the higher and lower volume hospitals appears to be independent of whether a patient has sepsis or not. So we're we, we're left with uh, a lot of further questions um, as uh, moving forward. You know, I, I think in some regards to put this in perspective, we're it's it's a matter of 
how do we figure out how to incorporate uh, important findings and in, in research into clinical practice? You know, I, I think of red, trans, red cell transfusions perhaps a little bit differently. Sometimes a new technology comes along and people are perhaps quicker to embrace something that's new or something that is, is to be done, whereas decreasing red, transf- red cell transfusions is kind of taking something away or doing doing less. And I wonder if there's differences in the way those different types of practices might get incorporated. Yes, and, and how, we, how do we adapt that knowledge uh, and and incorporate that into our into our uh, different skill sets. It's it's uh, uh, transfusions don't have the novelty of a of a new device, um, uh, and it's something that we we were quite comfortable. It would seem too comfortable, perhaps, um, uh, providing for our patients, and yet we actually need to uh, do this in a in a more restrictive fashion. We see this with uh, how we ventilate our patients with. Uh, lung protecting uh, ventilation for, for ARDS, um, and we, we see that certainly here with, uh, with, with transfusions that in many cases less, maybe more. And so how do we incorporate that into our practices, and are there different strategies that we need to employ to, uh, to ensure that we're doing what we say we should be doing? Yeah, what, what advice do you have for folks, or what have you done uh, at Emory or at Hopkins to help transcend research into clinical practice. And, and it's really a matter of, I mean, it's not just changing the, the knowledge base or the skill sets. It's really changing the whole culture uh, in order to uh, change practice. Yeah, so um, when we think about um, how we translate evidence into practice, you know, I think um, certainly we want to uh, be mindful of, of what the evidence base is. Um, we want to help... Um, clinicians uh, to understand what the uh, the importance of this is uh, and how this evidence a given piece of evidence uh, relates to their their individual practice um, so we also want to make sure obviously they're aware of the evidence we want to think about um, what makes it easier or hard for them to do um, to follow the evidence so is it that they're not aware of it is it that uh, it's too hard to, um, or perhaps in this case, too easy to transfuse um, and, and follow the evidence. And then how do we, um, are they aware of what they're actually doing, what their performance is? And I think uh, commonly we are overly uh, optimistic about our adherence to best practices. Um, and so developing um, audit and feedback mechanisms that um, clinicians to understand what their own practice is can be very helpful. So how do we um, ensure that the knowledge is available for our, our clinicians? How do we support um, making the right decisions at that time um, through this clinical decision support uh, protocols, uh, things like that, as well as how do we uh, go back um, in a regular manner back to the, uh, the clinicians and say, so this is uh, what your current performance is. Um, so, so that's what we're, we're implementing. Um, uh, you know, we've implemented that at Hopkins. We're implementing it uh, and have implemented it at, at uh, Emory as well, developing regular reports of what our, uh, some of our key process metrics are, uh, including transfusion practices. 
I continue to be uh, impressed with with that feedback. Um, as you point out, folks are most of us. I think we we think we're doing everything right and doing a great job. But when you provide data and feedback, uh, it can really be transforming in terms of uh, clinical practice. It is a great tool. It's difficult, um, but it certainly is a great tool to help change behavior. Absolutely, how we uh, um, it, it can serve almost as a as a coach, uh, a coaching mentality of saying, "Well, we think we're doing this right. How did we, um, you know, did we have intentional variation in what we're, uh, we're what we're doing with um, uh, versus unintentional, and we just uh, didn't even think about it as we were." Uh, prioritizing something else in our clinical decision making, and um, and didn't pay attention to this one aspect. So, ha- helping us to critically look at our own practices is is a uh, uh, humbling, but um, but I think really important uh, component of of uh, critical care these days. Yeah, I think in in many ways we thank you for this uh, publication because it it uh, allows us to see uh, it's is one other feedback mechanism to see that we're we're not. Uh, um, we're most likely not uh, trans- still transfusing in, in the appropriate uh, manner um, based on the existing evidence. That certainly one would have uh, expected to see a decrease in, in transfusion over that time period. Yeah, and I, I think it, it also from a, uh, uh, from a, a research, from a knowledge generation uh, aspect, it, I think is... Um, Something we need to, to be mindful of is is um, how are we doing uh, both in our higher and lower volume centers, making sure that we're um, developing uh, broad collaboratives of um, ICUs and hospitals that are um, both higher and lower volume, so we get a, a more robust picture of what our practices across the healthcare system. And I think also from uh, from a, a, a an the other perspective, seeing, um, trying to understand what the different factors are that influence the, the different uptake in knowledge, whether it be in uh, transfusions uh, or uh, ARDS management or sepsis management. So um, there's, a, I think, a lot of work that remains to be done on trying to understand um, and, and characterize how we work together as a, as a healthcare system for our patients. Great, and with, as with any great project, uh, many more answers to be, uh, many more questions, I should say, uh, many more questions to be answered. So we thank you for that and certainly look forward to, uh, to your future endeavors. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts.
Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.